from what the soul doth apprehend in the light of the Spirit. Otherwise, it is condemned as vain and an abomination because the heart and tongue do not go along jointly in the same. Neither indeed can they, unless the Spirit help our infirmities. This David knew full well and made him cry, Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. I suppose there is none can imagine but that David could speak and express himself as well as others, nay, as any in our generation, as is clearly manifested by his word and his works. Nevertheless, when this good man, this prophet, comes into God's worship, then the Lord must help, or he can do nothing. He could not speak one right word, except the Spirit itself gave utterance. Number two, it must be praying with the Spirit, that is, the effectual praying, because without that, men are senseless, hypocritical, cold, and unseemly in their prayers, and so they, with their prayers, are both rendered abominable to God. It is not the excellency of the voice, nor the seeming affection and earnestness of him that prayeth, that is in anything regarded of God without it. For man as man is so full of manner of wickedness that as he cannot keep a word or thought, so much less a piece of prayer, clean and acceptable to God. And for this cause, the Pharisees with their prayers were rejected. No question, but they were well able to express themselves in words and also for length of time too. They were very notable. But they had not the Spirit of Jesus Christ to help them, and therefore they did what they did with their infirmities or weaknesses only, and so fell short of a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of their souls to God through the strength of the Spirit. That is the prayer that goeth to heaven, that is sent thither in the power of the Spirit. Number three, nothing but the Spirit can show a man his misery by nature and so put a man into a posture of prayer. Talk is but talk, and so it is but mouth-worship if there be not a sense of misery and that effectually too. Oh, the cursed hypocrisy that is in most hearts and that accompanieth many thousands of praying men that would be so looked upon in this day and all for want of a sense of their misery. But now the Spirit that will sweetly show the soul its misery, where it is and what is like to become of it, also the intolerableness of that condition. For it is the Spirit that doth effectually convince of sin and misery without the Lord Jesus, and so puts the soul into a sweet, serious, sensible, affectionate way of praying to God according to His Word. Number four. 
If men did see their sins, yet without the help of the Spirit they would not pray, for they would run away from God with Cain and Judas, and utterly despair of mercy were it not for the Spirit. When a man is indeed sensible of his sin and God's curse, then it is a hard thing to persuade him to pray. For saith his heart, There is no hope. It is in vain to seek God. I am so vile, so wretched, and so cursed a creature that I shall never be regarded. Now here comes the Spirit, and stayeth the soul. Helpeth it to hold up its face to God by letting into the heart some small sense of mercy to encourage it to God. And hence, he is called the Comforter. Number five. It must be in or with the Spirit, for without that no man can know how he should come to God the right way. Men may easily say they come to God in His Son, but it is the hardest thing of a thousand to come to God aright and in His own way without the Spirit. It is the Spirit that searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. It is the Spirit that must show us the way of coming to God and also what there is in God that makes Him desirable. I beseech thee, saith Moses, show me the way that I may know thee. He shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. Number six. Because without the Spirit, though a man did see his mystery and also the way to come to God, yet he would never be able to claim a share in either God, Christ, nor mercy without God's approbation. Oh, how great a task is it for a poor soul that comes sensible of sin and the wrath of God to say in faith, but this one word, Father. I tell you, however hypocrites think, yet the Christian that is so indeed finds all the difficulty in this very thing. It cannot say that God is its Father. Oh, saith he, I dare not call him Father, and Hence it is that the Spirit is sent into the hearts of God's children for this very thing, to cry, Father, it being too great a work for any man to do knowingly and believingly without it. When I say knowingly, I mean knowing what it is to be a child of God and to be born again. And when I say believingly, I mean for the soul to believe and that from good experience, that the work of grace is wrought within him. This is the right calling of God, Father, and not as many do to say in a babbling way the Lord's Prayer as it lieth in the words of the book. Here is the life of prayer when a man being made sensible of sin and how to come to the Lord for mercy, he comes, I say, in the strength of the Spirit, and crieth, Father. That one word spoken in faith 
is better than a thousand prayers, as men call them, written and read in a formal, cold, lukewarm way. Oh, how far short are they of being sensible of this, who counted enough to teach themselves and their children to say the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, and so forth, when, as God knows, they are senseless of themselves, their misery, or what it is to be brought to God through Christ. Ah, poor soul, study your misery and cry to God to show you your blindness and ignorance before you be too rife in calling God your Father or learn your children so to say. And know that to say God is your Father in a way of prayer without an experience of the work of grace on your souls is to say you are Jews and are not, and so do lie. Give me leave a little to reason with thee. It may be thy great prayer is to say, Our Father which art in heaven, and so forth, Dost thou know the meaning of the very first words of this verse? Art thou truly born again? Hast thou received the spirit of adoption? Dost thou see thyself in Christ, and canst thou come to God as a member of Him? Or art thou ignorant of these things, and yet darest say, Our Father? Is not the devil thy father? And dost thou not do the deeds of the flesh, and yet darest thou say to God, Our Father? Nay, art thou not a desperate persecutor of the children of God? Hast thou not cursed them in thine heart many a time? And yet, out of thy blasphemous throat, thou sufferest these words to come, even our Father. He is their Father whom thou hatest. But as the devil presented himself among the sons of God when they were to present themselves before the Father, so it is now, because the saints are commanded to say, Our Father. Therefore all the blind, ignorant, rabble in the world must also use the same word. And dost thou indeed say, Hallowed be thy name with thy heart? Dost thou study by all honest and lawful ways to advance the name, holiness, and majesty of God? Doth thy heart and life agree with this passage? Dost thou strive to imitate Christ in all the works of righteousness which God doth command of thee? It is so, if thou be one that can truly, with God's allowance, cry, Our Father. And dost thou not clearly make it appear that thou art a cursed hypocrite by condemning that with thy daily practice, which thou pretendest in thy praying with thy dissembling tongue? Wouldst thou have the kingdom of God Come indeed, and also his will be done in earth as it is done in heaven. 
Nay, notwithstanding thou, according to the form, sayest, Thy kingdom come, yet would it make thee ready to run mad, to hear the trumpet sound, to see the dead arise, to reckon for all the deeds thou hast done in the body? Nay, are not the very thoughts of it altogether displeasing to thee? And if God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven, must it not be thy ruin? There is never a rebel in heaven against God, and if he should so deal on earth, must he not whirl thee down to hell? And so of the rest of thy petitions. Ah, how sadly would these men look, and with what terror would they walk up and down the world if they did but know the lying and blaspheming that proceedeth out of their mouth, even in their most pretended sanctity. The Lord awaken you, and learn you, poor souls, in all humility, to take heed that you be not rash and unadvised with your heart, and much more with your mouth when you appear before God. Number seven. It must be a prayer with the Spirit if it be accepted because there is nothing but the Spirit that can lift up the soul or heart to God in prayer. The preparation of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.1 That is, in every work for God and especially in prayer, if the heart run with the tongue, it must be prepared by the Spirit of God. Indeed, the tongue is very apt of itself to run without either fear or wisdom. But when it is the answer of the heart, and that such an heart as is prepared by the Spirit of God, then it speaks so as God commands and doth desire. They are mighty words of David, where he saith that he lifteth his heart and his soul to God. It is a great work for any man without the strength of the Spirit, and therefore I conceive that this is one of the great reasons why the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of grace and supplications. Zechariah 12.10 Because it is He which helpeth the heart when it supplicates indeed to do it. And therefore saith Paul, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 And I will pray with the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14.15 Prayer, unless the heart be in it, is like a sound without life, and an heart, unless it be lifted up of the Spirit, will never pray to God. Number eight, as the heart must be lifted up by the Spirit if it pray aright, so also must it be held by the Spirit when it is up, if it continue to pray aright. I do not know what or how it is with others' hearts, whether they be lifted up by the Spirit of God and so continued or no, but this I am sure of. First, it is impossible 
that all the prayer books that men have made in the world should lift up or prepare the hearts. That is the work of the great God Himself. And second, I am sure that they are as far from keeping it up when it is up. And indeed here is the life of prayer, to have the heart kept with God in the duty. It was a great matter for Moses to keep his hands lifted up to God in prayer, but how much more then to keep the heart up. The want of this is that which God complains of, that they draw nigh unto him with their mouth and honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Matthew 15:8. And verily, may I but speak my own experience and from that tell you the difficulty of praying to God as I ought. It is enough to make you poor, blind, carnal men to entertain strange thoughts of me. For as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it loath to go to God and when it is with Him, so loath to stay with Him that many times I am forced in my prayers first to beg of God that He would take my heart and set it on Himself in Christ, and when it is there, that He would keep it there. Nay, many times I know not what to pray for. I am so blind, nor how to pray. I am so ignorant. Only blessed be grace, the Spirit helps our infirmities. Oh, the starting holes that the heart hath in times of prayer. None knows how many byways the heart hath and back lanes to slip away from the presence of God. How much pride also, if enabled with expressions. How much hypocrisy, if before others. And how little conscience is there made of prayer between God and the soul in secret unless the spirit of supplication be there to help. When the spirit gets into the heart, then there is prayer indeed and not till then. Number nine. The soul that doth rightly pray, it must be in and with the help and strength of the Spirit, because it is impossible that a man should express himself in prayer without it. When I say it is impossible for a man to express himself in prayer without it, I mean that it is impossible that the heart, in a sincere and sensible affectionate way, should pour out itself before God with those groans and sighs that come from a truly praying heart without the assistance of the Spirit. It is not the mouth that is the main thing to be looked at in prayer, but whether the heart be so full of affection and earnestness in prayer with God that it is impossible to express their sense and desire. For then a man yearns indeed when his desires are so strong, many and mighty, that all the words, tears and groans that can come from the heart cannot utter them. A man that truly prays one prayer shall afterward never be able to express with his mouth or pen 
the unutterable desires, sense, affection, and longing that went to God in that prayer. The best prayers have often more groans than words, and those words that it hath are but a lean and shallow representation of the heart, life, and spirit of that prayer. You do not find any words of prayer that we read of come out of the mouth of Moses when he was gone out of Egypt and was followed by Pharaoh, and yet he made heaven ring again with his cry. But it was the inexpressible and unsearchable groans and cryings of his soul in and with the Spirit. God is the God of Spirit, and his eyes look further than at the outside of any duty whatsoever. The nearer a man comes in any work that God commands him to the doing of it according to his will, so much the more hard and difficult it is. And the reason is because man as man is not able to do it. But prayer, as aforesaid, is not only a duty but one of the most eminent duties, and therefore so much the more difficult. Number ten, it must be with the Spirit, or else there will be a failing in the act itself. So there will be a failing, yea, a fainting in the prosecution of the work. Prayer is an ordinance of God that must continue with a soul so long as it is on this side glory. But as I said before, it is not possible for a man to get up his heart to God in prayer, so it is as difficult to keep it there without the assistance of the Spirit. And if so, then for a man to continue some time in prayer with God, it must of necessity be with the Spirit. Christ tells us that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And again tells us that this is one definition of a hypocrite, that either he will not continue in prayer, or else if he do, it will not be in the power that is in the spirit of prayer, but in the form or a pretense only. It is the easiest thing of an hundred to fall from the power to the form, but it is the hardest thing of many to keep in the life, spirit, and power of any one duty, especially prayer. That is such a work that a man without the help of the Spirit cannot so much as pray once, much less continue. Jacob did not only begin, but held to it. I will not let thee go except thou bless me. Genesis 32:26. So did the rest of the godly. But this could not be without the spirit of prayer. It is by one spirit that we have access unto the Father. Ephesians 2:18. That same is a remarkable place in Jude when he stirreth up the saints by the judgment of God upon the wicked to stand fast and continue to hold out in the faith of the gospel as one excellent means thereto, without which he knew they would never be able to do it.
saith he, building up yourselves on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, as if he had said, Brethren, as eternal life is laid up for the persons which hold out only, so you cannot hold out unless you continue praying in the Spirit. The great cheat that the devil deludes the world with is to make them continue in the form of any duty, the form of preaching, of hearing, of praying, and so forth. These are they that have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. From such, turn away. Second Timothy 3.5 John Bunyan, 1660 God willing to be continued in the May studies. Study number six, The Eye of Faith. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Job 42.5 What did Job signify by this? Obviously, his words were not to be understood literally. No, by employing a common figure of speech, he meant that the mists of unbelief occasioned by self-righteousness had now been dispelled and faith perceived the being of God as a glorious and living reality. Mine eyes are ever toward the Lord, Psalm 25.15, by which is meant that his faith was constantly in exercise. Of Moses it is said that he endured as seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews 11.27, that is, his heart was sustained through faith's being occupied with the mighty God. Faith is frequently represented in Scripture under the metaphor of bodily sight. Our Lord said of the great patriarch, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. John 8.56 Meaning that his faith looked forward to to the day of Christ's humiliation and exaltation. Paul was commissioned unto the Gentiles to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God. Acts 26.18 Or, in other words, to be the divine instrument of their conversion through preaching to them the word of faith. To some of his erring children he wrote, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently plainly set forth, crucified among you? Galatians 3.1 Now what we wish to point out in this article is that when Scripture speaks of faith under the notion of bodily sight, its writers were doing something more than availing themselves of a pertinent and suitable figure of speech. The author of Scripture is the one who first formed the eye, that marvelous organ of vision, and without a shadow of doubt, he so fashioned it 
as to strikingly adumbrate in the visible that which now plays a prominent part in the Christian's dealings with the invisible. Everything in the material world shadows forth some great reality in the spiritual realm as we should perceive had we but sufficient wisdom to discern the fact. A wide field is here open for observation and meditation, but we shall now confine ourselves to a single example, namely, the eye of the body as it symbolizes the faith of the heart. First, the eye is a passive organ. The eye does not send out a light from itself, nor does it give anything unto the objects it beholds. What can the eye communicate to the sun, moon, and stars when it gazes upon them? No, the eye merely receives the print or image of them into the mind on the retina, which is then transmitted to the brain, without adding anything to them. Just so is it with faith. It gives nothing unto God or to what it beholds in the word of His grace. It simply receives or takes them into the heart as they are presented to the soul's view in the light of the divine revelation. What did the bitten Israelites communicate unto the brazen serpent when they looked unto it and were healed? As little do we add unto Christ when we look unto Him and are saved. Isaiah 45.22 Second, the eye is a directing organ. The man that has the light of day and his eyes open, can see his way, and is not so likely to stumble into ditches or fall into a precipice as a blind man or one who walks at night time. So it is with faith. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble, but the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Proverbs 4, 19 and 18. Of Christians it is said that we walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. By looking off unto Jesus, faith's viewing our exemplar, we are enabled to run the race which is set before us. Third, the eye is a very quick organ, taking up things at a great distance. Within a fraction of a moment, I can turn my gaze from things lying on the ground and focus it upon the mountains which are many miles away, nay more. I can look away altogether from the things of earth and mount up among the stars and in a second view the entire expanse of the heavens. What an optical marvel is that! Equally wonderful is the power of faith. It is indeed a quick-sighted grace taking up things at a great distance, as the faith of the patriarchs did who saw the things promised afar off. Hebrews 11.13 So too, 
In a moment, faith may look back to an eternity past and view the everlasting springs of electing love, active on its behalf before the foundations of the earth were laid, and then, in the same breath, it can turn itself towards an eternity yet to come and take a view of the hidden glories of an invisible world within the veil. Fourth, the eye, though it be little, is a very capacious organ. The man that has the light of day and has his eyes open may see all that comes with the range of his vision. He may look around and see things behind, forward, and view things ahead, downward upon the waters in a well or a stream at the bottom of a deep ravine, upwards and gaze upon bodies in the distant heavens. So it is with faith. It extends itself onto everything that lies within the vast compass of God's Word. It takes knowledge of things in the distant past. It also apprehends things that are yet to come. It looks into hell and penetrates into heaven. It is able to discern the vanity of the world all around us. It is true that there may be a genuine faith that takes in but little of the light of divine revelation at first, yet here again the earthly adumbration accurately shadows forth this spiritual truth. The eye of an infant takes in the light and perceives external objects, but with a good deal of weakness and confusion until, as it grows more, its vision extends further and further. So it is with the eye of faith. At first, the light of spiritual knowledge is but dim. The babe in Christ is unable to see afar off. But as faith grows, it takes in more of God, more of Christ, more of things above. It wades deeper and deeper into the divine mysteries until it comes at length to be swallowed up in open vision. John 17:24. Fifth, the eye is a very assuring faculty. Of the five bodily senses, this is the most convincing. What are we more sure of than what we see with our eyes? Some fools may seek to persuade themselves that matter is a mental delusion, but no one in his right mind will believe them. If a man sees the sun shining in the heavens, he knows that it is day. In like manner, faith is a grace which carries in its very nature a great deal of certainty. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. Skeptics may deny the divine inspiration of the Scriptures, but when the eye of faith has gazed upon its supernatural beauties, the point is settled once for all. Others may regard the Christ of God as a pious myth, but once the saint has really beheld the Lamb of God, it can say, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Sixth, 
The eye is an impressing organ. What we see leaves an impression upon our minds. That is why we need to pray often, Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. Psalm 119.37 That is why the prophet declared, Mine eye affecteth mine heart. Lamentations 3.51 If a man looks steadily at the sun for a few moments, an impression of the sun is left in his eye, even though he turn his eyes away from it or shut them. In like manner, real faith leaves an impression of the Son of Righteousness upon the heart. They looked unto Him and were lightened. Psalm 34, 5 Even more definite is Second Corinthians 3.18 But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit of the Lord. As the mighty power of Christ will in a coming day transform the bodies of His people from mortality to life and from dishonor to glory, so also does the Holy Spirit now exert a moral transforming power on the character of those who are His, and that by calling faith into exercise the activity of which more and more conforms the soul to the image of God's Son. Seventh, the eye is a wondrous organ. Those who are competent to express an opinion affirm that this particular member is the most curious and remarkable of any part of the human body. There is much of the wisdom and power of the Creator to be discovered in the formation of the visive faculty. So too, faith is a grace that is curiously and wondrously wrought in the soul. There is more of the wisdom and power of the divine workman discovered in the formation of the grace of faith than in any other part of the new creature. Thus we read of the work of faith with power, 2 Thessalonians 1.11. Yea, that the same exceeding great and mighty power which was put forth by God in the raising of Christ from the dead is exerted upon and within them that believe. Ephesians 1.19. Eighth, the eye of the body is a very tender thing. It is soon hurt and easily damaged. A very tiny cinder will cause pain and make it weep. And it is very striking to note that that is the very way to recovery. It weeps out the dust or moat that gets into it. So too faith is a most delicate grace thriving best in a pure conscience. Hence, the Apostle speaks of holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, 1 Timothy 3.9. The lively actings of faith are soon marred by the dust of sin or by the vanities of the world getting into the heart where it is seated. And wherever true faith is, if it be hurt by sin, it vents itself 
in a way of godly sorrow. Arthur Pink For most of this study, we are indebted to a sermon preached by Ebenezer Erskine in 1740. This concludes the April Studies. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.